Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Al Pazimentier, the lead author of the book, The Joy of Mathematics. The subtitle, Marvels, Novelties, and Neglected Gems that are Rarely Taught in the Classroom, describes the book nicely. Much of the book can be read by someone with only a couple of years of high school math, and the book does a terrific job of showing the reader why those of us who love math do so. We like arithmetic, algebra, geometry, infinity, and the counterintuitively surprising, and the book contains lovely examples of all of these. Al, welcome to the show, and by the way, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. But that's not for a couple of days yet. Oh, Skype told me it was today. (laughs) The 18th. You you can send me another message on the 18th. Oh, okay. I'll do that. Uh, Al, why do you think math so polarizes people that some love it and some hate it? Well, I hate to say it this way, but uh, one of the biggest problems in our society, and it's largely, I'd say, the European, the American and European societies where... Um, the it's handed down from generation to generation. In other words, it begins, or it, it it's promulgated by the elementary school teachers who are typical um, citizens and uh, haven't had a great experience. Many of them with mathematics. Now there are obvious exceptions. There's no question. But I'm speaking of the majority aren't crazy about math. They know they have to teach it, and they teach it in a way that, unfortunately, is uh, pretty obvious that that they have to teach it, and they don't necessarily love teaching it. So this uh, lack of love is brought to the students, and it's then uh, uh, generated home as well. Parents are typical citizens, and um, I can tell you when I'm in a social setting, And I tell people that my field is mathematics without hesitation, 90 percent of the people respond by saying, oh, my God, I was always terrible in mathematics. They're proud. It's a badge of honor to be lousy in mathematics and still be successful in life. So this thing gets uh, if you ask me, where can we stop it? I'd say we can stop it by. Uh, educating the parents about the beauty and power of mathematics and to show them what it is and that it's not as awful as they had previously thought it would be. And the second thing is to somehow engage the teachers to spend a little bit more time motivating students, enriching the students with a lot of things that are not necessarily a part of the curriculum. And that is exactly why this book was written. And, uh, to somehow uh, get them to get away from teaching to the test, which in today's uh, American society, beginning with the uh, no child left behind and then race to the top uh, actions from the federal government have caused teachers to teach to the test because they know they're being rated by how well their students do on standardized tests. And so, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to solve, but the book we just put out is uh, was the the working title 
was uh, everything your math teacher forgot to tell you. And, of course, you know, it's got a more elegant title now, The Marvels, Novelties, and Neglected Gems That Are Rarely Taught in Math Class. Uh, we called it The Joy of Mathematics. Yeah, I think that's a good title. And also, uh, your experiences are probably uh, duplicated by many teachers, including myself. I mean, I always felt that what would happen is that the kid would be having, a student would be having trouble in math, and they'd go to the father because that was the most likely person who knew math and said, Dad, I'm having trouble with this problem. And Dad says... I was terrible in math. Ask your mother. Goes to the mother. The same, exactly the same situation. But I'm just wondering whether or not you feel that the approach that is generally adopted in some of the Asian communities of having specialized mathematics teachers at an early age might help to solve this problem. Yes and no. Uh, I just want to uh, um, highlight a little bit what you just said because it's exactly correct but I would change it a little bit. I've heard oftentimes the following scenario. Kid comes home with two tests, gets a, 70, a 75 in English and a 75 in math. Parents say, what's the matter with you? Can't you speak English? Can't you read? Why do you, how do you get a 75 in math? That's unacceptable. Oh, and you're 75 in, in, in English, I'm sorry. The 75 in math, oh my God, am I glad you passed. I didn't do better myself. So the child's expectation in math is low, and the expectation in English is high, and so that's where the concentration is. Now, as per these um, these uh, after-school uh, support centers, and there's one just in my neighborhood here called Mathnasium, and I understand they're all over the place now. I don't see many kids in there, but uh, I see a lot of Asian youngsters, and they are in, in New York City right now, those, the Asian students are the majority of the specialized high schools, uh, Bronx High School of Science, Brooklyn Technical High School, uh, Stuyvesant High School. The majority of the students are Asian. And I have a feeling that may be because they are very often getting extra help after school and on weekends. And that may be one way to solve the problem, to compensate for what they're not getting at home. But uh, it's, it's an open question still. Okay. Um, I guess one of the things that uh, you mentioned about the book is that it would certainly help teaching if uh, teachers used some of the material in your book. And how would you integrate some of the topics in your book into math classes? Well, this can be done actually at any grade level. And uh, there are many things that one can do that show that there is power and beauty in mathematics, and it's not necessarily taught. I mean, just to rattle off a bunch, say, when you're dealing with arithmetic. When you're dealing with early arithmetic, it would be very nice to show how you can check whether a number is divisible by 9 or 3 or 11 just by practically looking at the number and not doing the actual division. Or shortcuts in arithmetic, multiplying by 11. If you have to multiply the number 23 times 11, all you have to do is stick the, add the 2 and the 3 and stick the 5 in the middle, and you get the answer, 253. I mean, simple little tricks, and the kids will come home and say, oh, my God, that's wonderful. They'll tell their parents. They'll tell their, their friends who are not in the class, and, and so on, and they get a certain amount of pride. Then you can show all these wonderful relationships with palindromic numbers, with friendly numbers. Uh, you can talk about all kinds of other um, uh, issues that um, 
come up in arithmetic that are not taught. And then, of course, there's this overarching thing, the Fibonacci numbers, which you can cover. You can bring up in every area of mathematics. They're probably the most uh, prolific uh, numbers in all of mathematics. So, And these are hardly ever mentioned. So when you talk about, I mean, even when you're teaching geometry, surely it's a in the United States, we teach a course in the 10th grade or sometimes 9th grade, um, which is unusual. It's not done throughout the world in geometry, Euclidean geometry, but it's prescribed. Yet there are so many wonderful theorems and relationships which are not part of the curriculum, which are fun and interesting and unusual. And even if you take the common ones, like the Pythagorean theorem, which everybody knows, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, there are probably about 400 different proofs of that theorem around. Um, there was a book published by Loomis in uh, 1940 where he lists 370 different proofs of Pythagorean theorem. And then it's a very interesting thing if a teacher says, you know, not a single one of those proofs uses trigonometry. And the kids say, why not? And that should tell the kid that, first of all, trigonometry is based on the Pythagorean theorem. Therefore, you can't prove something when it's based on it. And so uh, it, it adds another dimension to understanding what is trigonometry and how does that relate to Pythagorean theorem and so on and so forth. Just a a brief answer. Yeah, well, one of the things about your book is that it's divided into five chapters, and you've sort of given us a preview of a couple of them. But what are they, and how did you choose them? Well, I chose them because I thought those were the main large areas. There's arithmetic novelties. The second chapter is algebraic explanations of accepted concepts. In other words, explaining why <clears throat> things happen and why certain, why you can't, for example, why you can't divide by zero, just to give you one example. Um, geometric curiosities is, is the third chapter. And there are so many, so many, many things in geometry, all simply using Euclidean geometry, nothing more than high school mathematics. Then the fourth chapter is a, a sort of an up and coming topic, which 50 years ago was hardly in the curriculum namely probability. And there you have so many exciting things which are almost mind-boggling, like the birthday problem, that the probability, if you have a random class or a group of, say, 30 people, that the probability is very, very high, over 70%, that there will be two people with the same birth date. In that. And people say, how can that be? You have 366 possible dates in a year how can you, when you only have 30 people in a room, how can you have such a high probability? Well, you go into very, very, very simple probability um, exercise to show that that is the case. Or the Monty Hall problem, you know, the show Let's Make a Deal, although it's changed in recent years, uh, when Monty Hall, who, by the way, recently passed away, um, was the host, uh, there were three doors and... Uh, a person from the audience came up to select one door behind which would be a car and the other doors would have a goat and they'd have to pick the door as best they could, obviously not seeing what's behind them. At one, they'd pick, let's say, door number three. And then Monty Hall would say, are you sure you want number three? So, well, I'm going to stay with number three for a moment. And then he would expose knowing he knew where the car was. He'd expose one of the goat doors 
leaving a goat door closed and the car door closed. And then the, he would ask the uh, contestant again, do you want to stay with that or switch? And the crowd, the, the audience would yell switch and stay and switch and stay, be about a half a minute for a decision. And the question was, is there a better strategy? Because at this point, you're looking at two doors and one has a car and one has a goat. So most people thought, doesn't matter, it's 50-50. It's not. And that's a very interesting example of how probability can help us in our everyday lives. The fifth chapter is just kind of common sense from a mathematical perspective, how you can solve some unusual problems or successive discounts. For example, if you go to a store where they have a, uh, a, a regular 10% discount on everything, and one day they put out a sign, special 30, uh, 20% discount on everything in our store on top of the 10%. The competitor nearby says, my God, I'm not going to make any business today. I'm just going to offer 30% flat out. Now, where is the consumer better off going? To the one that offers 30% or the one that offers 10% and 20% on top of that? And most people say, that doesn't make a difference. Of course it makes a difference. The 30% is better. But how do you know that? And these are some of the things that should be part of the curriculum, should be taught, successive discounts, successive percentages, and aren't taught. Or... As another example, the famous rule of 72, how can you tell how long it will take your money uh, in a bank that's compounded daily or regularly uh, to double? And that's a very easy thing. If let's say for the sake of argument and we go back to the Stone Age probably when interest rates were say 8%, how long would it take at an 8% uh, regular interest for the money to double that you have? Well, all you have to do is divide 72 by 8, and you get 9, and so 9 years, it would double the money. Now, how does that happen? Again, these are all very cute topics that require nothing but simple algebra or simple arithmetic or simple geometry. And that's the kind of thing that we felt should be blended into the standard curriculum because when a teacher does something like that, they bring into that picture their own enthusiasm. They're not just following a prescriptive curriculum. They're now coming in with their own, I want to show you this wonderful thing. And that enthusiasm is contagious. And the students then get turned on by what's being taught. And when they get it, they go home and say, hey, mom, look what I just learned. Isn't this phenomenal? Look at this. So that's what we've tried to do with this book. Al, I think that's an excellent idea. And to give our readers sort of a preview of what there is in the book, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take a few of the things that um, you mention in the book, some of which you've already hit on a little, and some of which are things that appear later in the book, and just sort of go by them a little to just sort of give uh, the readers, a or rather the listeners. I think of people as simultaneously in the audience, they're listeners, but we hope that they'll be persuaded to go out and get the book and become readers. So anyway, um, one of the things that fascinates people are prime numbers. And why are prime numbers so important? Well, prime numbers have fascinated uh, mathematicians for years. How, do you, how many are there? How do you generate them? You know, a prime number is a number which is divisible only by itself in one. And so it has a very special uh, characteristic in number theory. But in and of itself, 
there are a lot of things you can do with them, but it's always been a challenge to find out, can you get a formula for develop uh, for determining prime numbers, number one, and number two, uh, what what do they how how can they help us in in our arithmetic uh, endeavors? So it's it's you know more it's it's more of a ki- knowing a kind of number than uh, to go any further than that would be a little bit beyond the scope of the uh, uh, of the book. Uh, okay, what are you referred earlier to something called amicable numbers? What are those? Well, that's just a curious pair of numbers, and there are several of such. Uh, a pair of numbers where the uh, if you take all the divisors of one number, let's say 220, you take all those divisors, and there are about, say, eight or nine of them. Those, are, In other words, all the numbers that divide exactly into 220, like 1, 2, 4, 5, 10, 11, 20, 22, 44, 55, and 110, and add them up, you get 284. Now, you take 284, and you do the same thing for 284, and you get to 220. In other words, they are two numbers where the proper divisors of one is equal, the sum of the proper divisors of one is equal to the sum of the uh, is equal to the uh, sum of the proper divisors of that sum. So it takes you back and forth. It's just a curiosity that mathematicians discovered, and they call them friendly numbers or amicable numbers. You know, you wonder who first discovered that. There's a lot of stuff in mathematics that I see that's so cute, something like this, and you wonder who first discovered that because, you know, maybe somebody had a list of the uh, of the factors of the various different numbers, but a lot of this is sort of lost in, uh, you know, lost in ancient history. Um, well, let, let me just say one thing. When we talk about in mathematics, and this is a curious thing, and it's a kind of a nice story for parents to tell kids. There are a number of situations in mathematics where we name an issue after a person, a mathematician, with the assumption that he's the one who discovered it. Take, for example, um, uh, Lorenzo Mascheroni, an Italian mathematician several hundred years ago, who came up with a proof that all the constructions that you can do with a straight edge and compasses can be done with the compasses alone. You say, well, how can that be? How can you make a straight line with a compass? Well, you can't make the line itself, but you can put as many points on that line as you want with just a compasses. And so these are called Mascheroni constructions. Well, it turns out the early part of the 20th century, somebody found a an old math book from the 1600s by a, a, an obscure mathematician, George Moore, M-O-H-R, who had done this about 50 or 100 years before Mascheroni, but obviously Mascheroni didn't know about it, nor did very many other people. But today, they're not called Moore constructions, they're called Mascheroni constructions. Or take for, as another example, when you talk about who discovered what, um, there is a, uh, a, a famous mathematician, Robert Simpson, a Scottish mathematician, who wrote a geometry textbook in the mid-1700s, which probably, to a large extent, was the first English-language uh, geometry book that um, sort of followed Euclid's uh, path and is probably one of the models for our high school geometry course today. 
The book was in print for over 100 years. Matter of fact, I have one copy from the 1700s and one from the 1800s. And uh, everything that came out that was of that of a descriptive geometry, not um, um, d uh, Cartesian, not from Descartes, um, was attributed to Simpson. Oh, probably Simpson. Well, there's a beautiful theorem, a very, very simple theorem in, in geometry, which is known as Simpson's theorem, which wasn't discovered by Simpson. It was discovered by William Wallace after Simpson died, but they gave him credit anyway. So go figure it. You know, you can't, it, it's very difficult. And by the way, it's known today that the uh, Asians the, uh, in China and Japan knew about the Pythagorean theorem, we assume, before Pythagoras did, or it was known, yet it is still known as a Pythagorean theorem. So to attribute something, you got to be really careful because uh, it, it's oftentimes possible that that's uh, uh, not exactly correct. Well, I do know one instance of somebody noticing something, which was probably noticed before. Um, I don't know whether or not you know who Art Porges was. He wrote what I consider to be the best story about mathematics ever written. It's called The Devil and Simon Flagg. And if you Google it, it's, it's just a wonderful story. But anyway, I started corresponding with him sometime about 12 or 15 years ago. He passed away about five or six years ago. And he told me that he had been a math instructor at Oxford. College in Los Angeles, and he noticed that 153 has a very unusual property. It's one cubed plus five cubed plus three cubed. And Art was, as I said, he was a math teacher before he became a science fiction and mystery writer. But nonetheless, people are fascinated by numbers. And I think that that's one of the things that your book does. It points out the fascination in numbers. And I know that's one of the reasons that I got into mathematics, um, because I was fascinated by numbers earlier in my life, but the difficulty is that I've found that for every one person who's fascinated by numbers in, in, in from the standpoint of arithmetic, you can find 10 people who are fascinated by numbers because they believe in numerology. Well, to, just to uh, add to what you mentioned about Art Borges, there are several numbers that do that. The number 407 is equal to four cubed plus zero cubed plus seven cubed. And the number 371 is equal to three cubed plus five cubed plus one cubed, as, which is the same kind of pattern that you just mentioned for the number 153. And we then show that this can be done with a four digit number to the, where the sum of the digits are each taken to the fourth power. So yes, you're right. Those are fascinating things. And those are things that would be very, very nice just to mention in a classroom, and I'll tell you, you know, <clears throat> sometimes teachers say, I haven't got time. I haven't got time. I've got to get them ready for the next test or whatever it is, and we've got this curriculum to cover. And I say, you know something? If you take out five or ten minutes and show the students something that's not in the curriculum, not going to be tested, and you're wasting, so to speak, you're using, excuse me, you're using ten minutes of valuable class time to do that, I say that's an investment because you're taking time to turn them on and they will become much more receptive in the next uh, half hour of, of instruction because all of a sudden they've been shown the excitement that can be shown in, uh, in mathematics. So I don't see it as a distraction or a detraction. I see it as an investment. Al, I absolutely agree with you, but I'd go even further. I'd say it's a net gain. 
And yep. one of the things that it's, it's better to teach something that fascinates students and gets them interested and motivated to do some more stuff, then I'd rather teach that type of stuff or at least put, a, put some time into that in every single lecture than just doing a couple more of the dull problems that they're seeing. And one of the things that really bothers me is I'm, I'm really bothered, and uh, you've indicated that you are too, by all this standardized testing, judging teachers by the results of their students on the test and teaching to the test because that kills the joy of learning and it probably kills the joy of learning in far more in far more subjects than mathematics yeah well you know i'm always fascinated why finland has such a wonderful uh score on the pisa test now in the united states we don't spend much time uh, considering the PISA exams, uh, I don't know why, but in Europe, it's a it's a uh, a very very important measure of success or failure, and the Finns te- seem to come out on top frequently. And I'm I've spoken to leaders of uh, uh, the education community in Finland, and I'm still not completely clear on how that happens. Uh, yes, they do get the top 10 percent of the uh, university graduates. Uh, gravitate to being teachers. Uh, In the United States, you'd probably want to be a doctor or a lawyer before you'd want to be a teacher. Uh, That's not the case there. I I think they don't certainly get paid more than the others. There is something, I believe, where they are allowed more freedom, where they're not pressured, they're dealt with as professionals, and uh, students are just dealt with as, uh, as each teacher feels it's most appropriate. So I think it's a question of professionalism that makes a big difference there. It's also a question, you know, it's also a question of governmental directives. Yes. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm just appalled by what I see happening in the educational community. And uh, I'm not happy to have a high score on the chronology exam because it means that I've got relatively little time left. But I do know it was a lot more fun to be a teacher um, 20, 30, 50 years ago than it is now. And uh, I'm, I really don't understand why the educational community doesn't just stand up and say, we're not going to do this. This is a horrible idea. But that's a topic probably for another day. Let's get back to what I consider to be one of the more fascinating things that I found in your book that I hadn't seen before and that I know the uh, listeners will appreciate. I love the problem of the two piles of coins with which you started the chapter on algebraic explanations of accepted concepts. Yeah, that's a uh, that, that that's one of the many um, counterintuitive situations that you can prove and convince the reader, but only through algebra. And it shows really the power of algebra and the kind of thinking. And it's very, very simple, and it's totally counterintuitive. Just as the previously mentioned uh, Monty Hall uh, problem is so counterintuitive, this is another one, and again, it's algebra, which uh, very simple. Whereas the Monty Hall is more of a probability thing, it's the algebra that tells you the answer, and it's qu- just quite simple. And uh, I encourage the reader to look at it and ponder it because it uh, it really does give you a sense of how algebra is not just a mechanical thing that kids are taught to do automatically and just remember how to solve this equation, solve that equation, and it has no meaning. It 
And then, okay, then the textbooks have these, what are called uh, problem solving, which I don't call them, I call them exercises, where the problems are uh, categorized according to subject matter. And it, this is a little bit different. It's very, very simple, but it's not, it doesn't allow itself to be uh, pigeonholed into one of these categories so the kids don't come out thinking, well, I learned, today I learned this technique and that technique, but just using it in a real sense. Um, yeah, why don't you tell them about that? You know, why don't you, uh, because as I said, I thought this was a beautiful problem. Why don't you actually just describe this for the listeners? Because it's very easy to understand when you hear it. It was easy for me to understand when I read it. And it's one of the types of things that um, we always hope that, you know, some of our listeners will say, hey, I heard this really great uh, podcast. Um, even though I'm interested in mathematics and, and you may not be, listen to this portion of the podcast between 20 minutes and 22 minutes and tell me if you don't find this fascinating. So if you tell our audience, maybe they'll go out and share it. The problem? Yeah. Okay. It, it goes this way. You're seated at a table in a dark room. On the table, there are 12 pennies, five of which are heads up and seven of which are tails up. Now mix the coins and separate them into two piles of five and seven coins respectively. Because you're in a dark room, you will know if the coins you are touching were heads up uh, or tails up. No, you would not. In other words, you can't see them, you can't feel them. They're in the dark room, they're in two piles. Then flip over the coins in the five-coin pile. When the lights are turned on, there will be an equal number of heads in each of the two piles. How can this be possible? you got to read the book. Yeah, and that's the type of thing that I, I can virtually guarantee you that if someone is listening to this, they're probably going to turn off the interview at this stage and say, i got to try that. Um, I, as I said, I enjoyed your book. I knew a lot of the things in it. And when I saw this, I said, I just love it. Of course, I knew what was going on because I have sufficient algebraic background to understand what the, why, what, what happened happened. But it's one of those things that if I ever teach an algebra course, boy, I'm hauling that one out because it's so it's it's so much fun to look at. Um, and so thanks for sharing that A in your book and B with our listeners here. Um, let's discuss a few of the other topics in the book. When we got to geometry, you discussed something called Heron's formula and Heronian triangles. I'm not sure if I've pronounced it correctly, but I think so. What are they? Well, Hero's formula is a very, very powerful formula. It's a, um, uh, a relationship that, in other words, when, when we learned how to find the area of a triangle uh, in school, uh, we were taught you've got to have the base and you've got to have the uh, height. And when you have the height and the base, well, then you're well on your way to getting the area of the triangle you just one half the you know the, the typical uh, formula for the area of a triangle then if you get a little further you find that okay there's another formula for finding the area of a triangle if you have the angle and two side uh, 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 two sides of a triangle and the included angle then you're, you're once again off on a, a formula that will give you the uh, uh, the, um, the the area of the triangle so that's all well and good, but what happens if you don't have the the um, the altitude and you just have 
uh, the three sides. Is it possible to do that? Well, guess what? There is such a formula called Huron's or Hero's formula. It depends on how you use it. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting because it's a simple formula. You simply take the perimeter and take half the perimeter. And the formula says the area is equal to the square root of the following product. The semi-perimeter, half the perimeter, times half the perimeter minus one side, half the perimeter minus the second side, and half the perimeter minus the third side. And that's called uh, Hero's formula to find the area of a triangle. Now, there are triangles for which the uh, area will always be an integer. And those are called Heronian or Heronian triangles. And there are quite a few of them. We list uh, uh, several dozen, and it's fun to play with it. It's just an unusual relationship amongst the sides of a triangle that deliver a tri uh, an area which is not a fraction, in other words, a uh, an integer. Yeah, um, and it seems like to a certain extent it ties in with uh, uh, ties in with Fermat's last theorem because if you look at things like three, four, five triangles, I assume you know three, four, five triangles are uh, right triangles. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess they're also Heronian triangles because all their sides are integers and the area is an integer. Absolutely, but we're talking about non-right triangles. Okay. For right triangles, it's, it becomes trivial. Yeah. But uh, for non-right triangles, that's where it's really interesting. Like 13, 14, 15 would be the most common. Boy, I didn't even know that. So, <laughs> so, so this is uh, so I'm learning things as well. Um, when I took math in high school, without a doubt, the most difficult mathematics course I took in high school, and also possibly even in my entire career, was a course that you never see taught anywhere anymore. It was solid geometry. It was just it was a beautiful but brutally difficult course, and. Um, or, uh, there's a formula that's well known. It's Euler's formula for convex polyhedra. And it was a fascinating formula, although not part of the geometry course because Euler lived, you know, 2,000 years after solid geometry was originally studied. But what is Euler's formula for convex polyhedra? Well, first of all, we need to understand what a convex polyhedron is. It's a uh, solid figure without any dent, so to speak. And uh, it has faces, it has edges, and those points are called vertices. And uh, it's fascinating that Euler, by the way, Leonhard Euler, a Swiss mathematician in the 1700s, um, was a most was probably the most prolific mathematician of all time. He wrote more than anyone else. And what's interesting is. At an early age, he lost sight in one eye, and he kept working. And then uh, in his later years, he lost sight in his second eye, and he kept working because it is said that he had a magnificent memory and a, uh, a, a great deal of uh, intuitive knowledge, and he used a scribe, and he would just rattle it off and carry on. So Euler is really one of the top mathematicians of all time. He was Swiss. But he worked for a long time in Russia, as well as in Berlin, and uh, he's someone to, uh, to take note of. In any case, he came up with many, many, many theorems. And by the way, Euler, uh, we shouldn't forget, 
and we take this for granted, many of the symbols that we use in mathematics today, such as pi, the um, the, uh, the ratio of the circumference to diameter of a circle, the Greek letter pi was popularized by him. He wasn't the first to use it, but he popularized it. He used the E for natural logarithms. He was the first to use the F of X symbol for function. He was the first one to use the summation symbol for adding a, a, a series. I mean, he was quite uh, quite the guy. He was also, interestingly enough, and for those, all of us who took geometry in high school, if you remember, you labeled the triangle with capital letters at the vertices, triangle ABC. And then sometimes you wanted to label the lengths of the sides, and you used lowercase ABC for the sides opposite those angles. He was the first to introduce that as well. So he did quite a bit for us uh, without taking credit for it. But here, this is known as Euler's formula. And what he said was any of these polyhedra has the following relationship. The vertices, the number of vertices, plus the number of faces, plus is equal to the number of edges plus two. Vertices plus faces equals edges plus two. And no matter what the kinds of faces they are, whether they're triangular or uh, um, square faces or whatever they are, that relationship holds. And so that's called uh, Euler's formula. You know, you touched on something that I was uh, I was teaching a course last night, and um, it, uh, it it had something in common with what I told students. When you were discussing the idea that Euler had standardized certain of the symbolic notations that we use, it makes it easier to communicate in mathematics when you do that, when everybody's sort of talking the same language. And I told my students last night that um, you get 25 mathematicians in a room and you ask them to define triangle and they will all give you an identical or nearly identical definition and every mathematician knows what you're talking about when you talk about a triangle. It makes communication and understanding very simple. But if you get 25 psychologists in a room and ask them to define love, what will probably happen is that they'll split into a number of groups depending upon which dominant psychologist espoused the theory that those groups were interested in. Maybe the Freudians, maybe the Adlerians, maybe the Jungians. And so even though people have a basic understanding of what love is. Nonetheless, the specifics sometimes make it difficult to talk about and answer questions. And it's one of the things that I always tell students initially in a mathematics course, because they always think this stuff is going to be so hard. Why is it not like everyday life? And in some instances, everyday life is harder than mathematics. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's interesting because um, it's... <laughs> The, the 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 way we label things sometimes is not always the same. For example, in geometry, um, after when the new math was uh, uh, introduced in the early 1960s, we no longer wrote just a b for the length of a side or for the segment a b or whatever. We had symbols that went above the a b. A line above it was. Uh, with two arrows was the line AB. With one arrow, it was a ray AB. And if that little line above AB had no arrows, it was a segment AB. And if there was no line above AB, it was the length of the segment AB. Now, we use that in the United States universally. 
but in Europe they use other symbols. So there are times when there is still a little bit of a um, uh, uh, disparity between the symbols used. But you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we're on, on much more of a, uh, a common basis than most other subject areas. And that's in large measure due to some of the great mathematicians of the past, Euler being uh, quite high on that list. You know, you mentioned the 1960s, which was maybe my favorite decade. And one thing that started, I think it started in the 1960s, and I'm not sure whether or not it's a contribution to math or a detriment to math, and I'd like your opinion on it. Um, when I was taking uh, when I was taking mathematics originally, there were no acronyms. And acronyms started coming in, I think, in the 1960s. For instance, the idea of FOIL, at first, at first, outer, inner, last, in order to tell how to multiply. Uh, multiply binomials, Sakatoa to tell you um, what the trigonometric ratios were. And of course, I didn't know any of this when I was taking the courses in the 1950s. And my students, all of a sudden, they started mentioning these terms and I didn't know what they were and I had to look them up. Do you think these are a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I guess that's an individual question. I will tell you I never use them in any of my teaching. I do know uh, the FOIL one I remember because it was short and easy to remember, but I never used it, never thought about it. Uh, there are students uh, who were taught those things. And uh, frankly, I, I, I don't think, I look, they're an interesting crutch. I don't think it's useful because when you teach it that way, the thinking has gone away. And you're not, you don't know why you're doing or what you're doing. You're just doing it because it says to do it that way. And I, that's probably one of the reasons I never taught it, never used it, never alluded to it. And uh, to this day, don't even think about it. Because uh, I think when you show that, you're showing something to be automatic without saying why you're doing what you're doing. Um, I want the listeners to know that this uh, – that this, uh, podcast has not been rehearsed, but Al, that's exactly what I hoped you would say, because that's my philosophy too. So thank you. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, you discussed earlier the theory of probability. And one of the interesting questions about the theory of probability is how it arose. And perhaps you could discuss that a little. Well, again, we don't know how it really arose, but we know we have a belief that it uh, emanated from a correspondence um, between mathematicians in France, basically, uh, Descartes, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Pascal, and, um, and uh, a number of others who uh, corresponded, and um, uh, they, they challenged each other to problems of gambling, basically, or betting, or what are the odds of this and that. And it's through these correspondences that... Uh, uh, that that the, um, uh, the, the the whole concept or the theory of probability evolved. It was just a, a series of uh, correspondences, um, nothing more than that. And you know, it grew. And one child, the problems became more uh, sophisticated, and uh, and others joined in. But it was you know, letter to this one, a letter to that one, back and forth, and. Uh, you had your uh, 
uh, you had your, your your theory of probability evolve out of that. You know, I think, um, uh, am I correct in that one of the problems that they discussed was if you rolled four die, what was the probability that a six would show up? Uh, there are so many, you know, um, there, there, it was in, it was Fermat and Pascal largely who started in, I think it was 1654 of memory serves me right. And, uh, it was, uh, essentially if it, it was a betting thing, if it, it, they want to know, um, if it was a game, um, which was evolved around with two players gaining points with a specific number of points to win a game. And the question was, if you stop the game at a certain point, who gets who's the winner before the end of the game? And it was that kind of thing that be, what, those were the first correspondences between uh, Fermat and Pascal. So, um, but which was, you know, it was very, very simple. It was just a, a betting game. And they said, well, if we stop in the middle, who's the winner? At what point? So that was basically, um, you know, without going into details of the problem, I, I could probably read it to you. It's, it's well known, um, you know, translated to English, of course. No, um, but nonetheless, it turns out... It had to do with die, obviously. It had to do with throwing dice. Yes, that's what, uh, that's what they were yeah, doing a lot of back yeah. then. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I think is unappreciated and not taught enough in schools is how fundamental prob- probability is to the way the world exists and... Um, Probability, when you look at it in school, they teach it from, you know, the gambling aspect of this, of course, interesting. And of course, you can talk about probability from the standpoint of statistics and as the uh, as the basis of insurance, which I consider to be extremely important in uh, the development of civilization. But I think one of the most fascinating aspects of probability that should be taught early and just doesn't seem to be is the fact that it's the underpinning of quantum mechanics. And this was only discovered uh, basically at the outset of the 20th century. And to me, it is so interesting that this fundamental, uh, uh, this fundamental dichotomy of not exactly knowing um, what the way things are, but being able to predict things on a long-term average basis. It turns out to underlie the atomic theory. It turns out to underlie practically all of the modern electronic technology we use. And one of the things that I try to do in my classes, and to some extent that you mentioned in the book, although the book, um, because it's at sort of a lower level, um, when I say lower level, I mean non-college level, because college is, uh, is where I teach, but there are so many things in the real world that we don't, uh, that we take for granted and we don't appreciate the mathematical underpinning of, one of which being the fact that our uh, our passwords and our bank accounts are kept safe by the difficulty of factoring large numbers, um, which only have two prime factors. It's the core of, uh, you know, it's the core of the RSA algorithm, which underlies the safety of most of our modern technology 
technology or the security aspect of it. And people don't realize, hey, the reason that our passwords are safe is because of mathematics that was only developed in the last 30 or 40 years. And people should, you know, people should learn to appreciate things like that more, I feel. Yeah, I, I agree. But, you know, you've got to always be sensitive to the, um, well, I don't know how to put this diplomatically, to the ability level of the reader. Because there are some people, clearly, who have the genetic makeup that allows them to do phenomenal things in mathematics. For example, I mentioned before, Euler had this phenomenal um, uh, uh, ability to memor uh, to remember things and memorize and so on. You take uh, Carl Friedrich Gauss, probably the most famous German mathematician of all time. Uh, it is said that because of his uncanny ability to do arithmetic computation in his head, he was able to come up with a lot of uh, relationships, which then he was able to uh, uh, generalize more. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm always very concerned about uh, playing to a person at a level that they can understand without stretching. And then if they want to take it further, that's their privilege. But my th this book is intended to show people all of the things that one can do in mathematics that aren't unfortunately done in the classroom, which in some cases are easier than the things that are shown in the classroom, but can really turn the uh, the the reader into a lover of mathematics. Yeah, as you say in the subtitle, marvels, novelties, and neglected gems that are rarely taught in math class. And I understand that that's the book that that's the level at which the book is pitched, and it's a good thing because the because um, at the higher level usually you find people that are more interested in mathematics. But in order to get them to be interested in mathematics at a higher level, you got to do something about it in elementary school, middle school, and high school. And I know that's what your book tries to do. And I think it does an excellent job of it. And I'm glad that, you know, I'm glad that you wrote this book and I'm glad that I'm uh, here to pronounce it. Uh, I'm here to promote it. And uh, that and one of the uh, there's one topic also that you bring up in the book that um, you spend a little time on and a lot of time has been spent in mathematics. But it's a topic that absolutely fascinates almost everybody. And that's infinity. And even though infinity isn't generally part of a basic mathematics curriculum, I found that students always find it interesting. They perk up when you talk about it. Well, there are so many counterintuitive things that you can talk about with infinity. I mean, there are comical ones. Like, for example, if you have a monkey uh, sitting at a typewriter for an infinite length of time, now you have to understand infinite length of time, that he will be able to type all of Shakespeare's works in the order in which he wrote them. And you say, well, how could that possibly, that's impossible, now, for an infinite length of time. Or Take uh, one that really boggles most people's minds when you say, now, you know, the natural numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on. Yeah, I know there's a set of natural numbers. Now, there, that's an infinite set. Yes, it goes on to infinity, whatever that, that means. Now, let's take another set of numbers, two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, and so on. All the even numbers. Well, there are an infinite number of those as well. Then I say, you know, which of those two sets do you think is larger? Oh, well, of course, the one that has the even and the odd numbers, the set of all the numbers. No, I say, they're equal. What? 
That can't be possible. We are missing all the odd numbers. I said, well, let's count them together. For every one in the set of numbers, uh, in the set of even numbers, there's a, a, a partner in the other set. And we go on like that all the way up. For the one, there's the two. For the two, there's the four. For the three, there's the six. And we are going on to infinity. And therefore, since there is a partnership between those two, the two sets are the same size. And you say, well, that's, but, but what happened to all those odd numbers are missing? I'm sorry. That's the nature of infinity. I mean, it's just one example. Yeah, there are lots of them. But when I remember, uh, what I remember is the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. And when they come to the, near the end of the movie, they say Jupiter and beyond the infinite. So, <laughs> so I always, you know, people love that when they, uh, when they heard it. Al, it's been fascinating to talk to you. And um, this, is, this is a wonderful book that I'm happy to recommend, especially not only to students, but to parents. Because if parents read it, what they'll be able to do is they'll be able to spice up um, what their student, what their kids are learning, even if the teachers won't do it for them. Because I know I was fat. Um, what got me interested in mathematics was not my uh, was not my teachers who were you know pretty much the same type of teacher that you've been discussing, but my father was interested in numbers. And I remember the first th time I ever got interested in numbers was when he was balancing his uh, accounts. And I wanted to toss a football around. And he said, I'll be with you in a few minutes. Um, I've got a difference of 36 cents. That means that I probably switched a couple of numbers. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And he told me, well, if you take a number such as 73 and switch the digits in uh, reverse order 37 and subtract them, it's 36, which is divisible by 9. And if you do that with any two-digit number, switch the digits and subtract them, it's always divisible by nine and I was hooked and that's the type of thing that's in your book and I hope that you know I hope that people take the opportunity to read it um, Al what I'd like to briefly ask you one of the things that I ask you uh, that I ask all interview uh, all the interviewees is first of all how can uh, someone who's interested in getting in touch with you do so well I'm happy to uh, give anyone who wants my email address, and I'm always very quick to respond to emails. I look at it all the time. It is ASP, my initials, 1818 at gmail.com. And I'm very happy to respond to anybody on anything. And I will say one thing that if any of the topics in this book entertain or fascinate people, a number of the books I've done in the past take each of these topics to a much, much more, um, a much broader level, like the golden ratio or pi or the Fibonacci numbers, or we talk about, I did one book on magnificent mistakes in mathematics, which is a lot of fun. There are a lot of mistakes uh, that are made, and some of them are just comical, and some of them are serious. So I'm happy to uh, respond to anybody, and I do it. Actually, I do it worldwide. I'm happy to. With the internet, people write me from all over the world, and it's it's fun. So, uh, Al, thank you so much for today's interview, and I look forward to seeing new books from you and interviewing you again. Okay, it'll be out shortly. Okay, take care. <laughs> My pleasure. Bye bye.